Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. One of my favorite founding fathers of the United States is one of the most enigmatic characters, one of the most influential, and in my view, one of the most unappreciated of the fathers, and that is Governor Morris. So I'm very happy that we have somebody here today to talk to us about Mr. Morris. Today's guest is the Charles A. Dana Professor of Politics and the Director, Program in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Juniata College in Huntington, Pennsylvania. Professor J. Jackson Barlow, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So, Governor Morris really takes off at the, the Constitutional Convention, but what were mm -hmm. some pivotal moments in his life prior to that? So Morris was born in, in 1752. His father and grandfather had been public officials. His father was an admiralty judge. His grandfather was a judge in New York State. Um, he came from a pretty, you know, for, for by New World standards, it was a pretty aristocratic uh, background. Um, went to... Uh, a school in New York, went to school, uh, further school in Philadelphia, and then ultimately when he was 14, 13 or 14, started at Columbia, what's now Columbia University, which was then King's College. Um, so he, you know, he had a really good education, studied for the bar in New York uh, for a couple of years. His, his co- uh, workers were Robert Livingston, who later became known as Chancellor Livingston, and John Jay. So they had lifetime friendships with them. Um, then he was he was ultimately elected to the New York State Assembly or state uh, what became the state legislature. This was uh, before independence. Um, was a was a lukewarm supporter of independence at first, but gradually warmed to it and became converted to the independence cause. He then served in the uh, uh, Confederation Congress, actually the Continental Congress, in seventy eight and seventy nine. Um, in seventeen eighty, he lost the lower part of his legs, so that was kind of a big deal for him. Um, in, in a carriage accident, although there's been a lot of speculation whether it was really a carriage accident or whether it was an angry husband uh, <laughs> chasing him out a window. That's why um, I smiled when you brought it up. Yeah. Uh, so, and I mean, there's a lot there's a lot to smile about with Governor Morris. I mean, a lot of stories that uh, may or may not be uh, quite accurate. Um and then he became an assistant to Robert Morris when Robert Morris was superintendent of finance uh, under the Confederation. Um, so Morris had uh, a lot of experience with finance and with central banking and with trade and so on, uh, even before he came to the Constitutional Convention. I read an anecdote, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I, I'll ask you, I thought it was kind of funny, that there was at a gathering or a party or something, and Governor Morris is talking to Alexander Hamilton, and he, he tells him, uh, I'm going to go over there and pat Washington on the back. You, you think I'll, you know, you think I'll do it, or Hamilton dared him to do it or some such thing. So he goes over there and he smacks Washington on the back and then he, he comes back and he says, well, that's something I'll never do, do again. <laughs> is there any truth to that story? Uh, it should be true, but it's not. <laughs> oh, that um, sucks. <laughs> yeah, it's too bad. 
But, uh, you know, Washington uh, and Morris had a really interesting relationship. Um, it was kind of a father-son relationship. Morris's own father was 48 when he was born, 50 when he was born. Um, so he never really had a relationship with his father. Uh, but during the war, he formed a very close bond with Washington. Um, so I think it's highly unlikely that Morris would ever have actually slapped Washington on the back <laughs> and said, you know, how are you, old boy? Or whatever it was he was supposed to have said. Um, but I, I can well imagine that if he had done that, that would have exactly been Washington's reaction. <laughs> so at, at the convention, Morris spoke the constitutional convention he spoke more than anybody else what were some of the positions that he took so morris wanted a senate for life um you know morris was was concerned to um uh to to get a government that that was uh, as they said in the in the 18th century high toned right um so kind of aristocratic kind of uh built on the idea that there was that the that the politics of deference, which is what Morris had been used to under the under the, um, uh, sorry under the um, uh, under the under British rule, um, that that politics of deference would continue and that people would defer to their betters, um, and and he wanted the betters uh, to to run things, so and he he made no secret of that. Um, so he was, um, uh, he was pretty energetic for those things. Now, that is to say, he also agreed with Madison on a, on a whole lot. Uh, Madison's big thing, what, what Madison wanted throughout the convention and never got was a veto on state laws. And, um, so Morris thought two things, one that, that the Senate, as it was constituted under the uh, final draft of the Constitution was going to be a disaster. Um, that senators would be delegates from their states, uh, would not have independence, and would simply do the bidding uh, of state authorities. Um, and the other thing he thought was that uh, uh, proportional representation in the Senate was important. Um, and, and of course, if they're delegates from the states, that proportional representation doesn't apply. Um, so he was, he was ultimately disappointed in the draft as almost all of the members of the convention were disappointed in one way or another, uh, with the final draft of the constitution. Morris got into quite a few exchanges I mean, he was very passionate, especially when it came to slavery, for instance, I believe he was arguing with... There were two Charles Pinckney's at the convention, Charles Coteworth Pinckney and, and Charles Pinckney. And I don't remember which one he, he was responding to. But what, were, mixed up. but what were Morris's positions when it came to slavery? So Morris was a longtime opponent of slavery. He had um, he and Jay and Livingston, actually, all three of them had worked to draft the uh, New York Constitution of 1777. Uh, Morris, in, in in the first time anyone had proposed this, uh, Morris had proposed gradual abolition in the New York Constitution. So by 1787, he had a he had a decade of experience in the anti-slavery cause. Um, 
so Morris came in opposed to slavery. He made a very passionate uh, uh, speech in in uh, early August, right, where he said it's the curse of heaven on the states where it exists. Um, and he opposed, he opposed the three-fifths clause. Um, he opposed any mention of slavery in the final document. Um, and so, of course, he was the drafter of the final draft of the Constitution, which ultimately was approved. And uh, he worked very hard to keep the word slavery and slave uh, out of the final draft of the Constitution. Now, it's been a few years since I've, I've read the convention debate, so correct me if I'm wrong. But I believe that the, what, what the South wanted was for slaves, for taxation purposes, to be counted as property so that they wouldn't have to pay taxes. But then for representation purposes, wanted them to be counted as not citizens, but residents, basically. Right. And, and, one. Yeah. And so Morris's response to that was something to the effect of, well, look, if they're property, then why isn't any other property counted when it comes to representation? And if you're saying that they're residents, then why not make them citizens and let them vote? He clearly recognized the hypocrisy and the shenanigans that they were playing. Ultimately, Absolutely. he ultimately he didn't get his way. But the three fifths compromise, although he may not have supported it, is does that have his imprint on it? In other words, was was the fact that they weren't able to get total representation based on the slaves that they held, uh, was that affected by Morris's arguments? I I think it was influenced by Morris's arguments. Um, Madison was the one who really uh, I think had come up with and drove the the compromise on the three-fifths clause, ultimately. So you mentioned earlier that he wrote the final draft. What are some of the lasting influences that we can see when we read that final draft of the Constitution where Morris is definitely implicated in what we're, what we're reading? Yeah, there's been a really good article recently. Uh, William Trainer, who's the uh, dean at Georgetown Law School, wrote a really nice article on uh, Morris calling him a dishonest scrivener, um, that he he actually made a lot of subtle changes in the Constitution uh, or in the draft uh, from the uh, penultimate draft to the ultimate draft. Um, so I think that... Um, one of the things that we can see, one of the big things that we see in the in the final draft of the Constitution is the architecture of separation of powers. The, the previous draft of the Constitution had different uh, bits of Congress and the judiciary and the executive all kind of mixed up. And that wasn't uncommon in, in you know, the way that 18th century constitutions were written. So Morris very clearly laid out Article 1 is about the legislature, Article 2 is about the executive, Article 3 is about the judiciary. Um, and so he was the one who really set out um, in, 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 in formal terms or in, in, in structural terms that clear delineation of a separated uh, set of separated powers. Um, the other thing is, um, if you'll notice, the, the next to last draft of the Constitution spoke of the legislative power, the executive power, and the judicial power. 
the Constitution says, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. Um, that little change in language means that they that the, the legislative power is not um, is not subject to interpretation, right? It is clearly enumerated. It is, you know, here they are, and that's it. And what's granted is granted, and what's not granted is not granted. So I, 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 it's interesting to me that you mention that because Article One, Section Eight lays out the enumerated powers and of course the 10th amendment says if 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 it's not enumerated there then it goes to the states or to the people and i've had a, de a debate and i don't know what your position is on this but with a lot of people concerning immigration and the the degree to which i find people will turn themselves into pretzels to say that there, there's a federal power over immigration it's astounding to me did morris have a position on immigration at all that you're aware of? No, he didn't. I don't, I'm not aware of a position that he took on immigration. There it may, it may be something in a letter or something like that. Um, but generally in the 18th century, the United States welcomed immigration because we didn't have enough people. We didn't have enough <laughs> workers to, to man the farms and the, you know, yeah. starting out the factories and so forth. Um, Morris did have views on new states, though. And he wanted, uh, you know, we had a lot of federal territory that had not yet been organized into states. And, and we came into the old Northwest Territory uh, at the end of the Revolutionary War. Um, but what Morris wanted was for that territory, any new territory, to be governed as colonies by the original 13 states. Um, he did not want you know, barbaric places like Ohio coming in and uh, and having equality with the original states. So in, in that sense, yes, he did have uh, some views on on how we should treat new members of the union. And I think probably any introductory to the Constitution class, certainly when, when I took introduction to the Constitution, they talk about Marbury v. Madison, and that's where the power of judicial review was given. But Morris, before the Constitution was even ratified, was arguing, uh, I think both in the convention and then in the state ratifying conventions, that judicial review was inherent in the judicial power. How come that isn't given more attention in these classes? I mean, Hamilton mentions it in the Federalist Papers mm -hmm. that they have judicial review. Morris is arguing it in the convention and in the ratifying convention. And yet we still have this lasting idea that somehow Marshall just usurped the power in 1803. It just seems like a lot of things with Morris go unrecognized. I don't I, I'm not a conspiracy mm -hmm. theorist. I don't think it's deliberate. It's just odd to me. Yeah, well, I mean, Morris made some really, I mean, he was in many ways the architect of the executive branch that we have, that we see. Um, and yes, he did argue in favor of judicial review. He, he understood that that was a, that was a power of judges. Maybe it's because he was a lawyer. Maybe it's because his father was, uh, and grandfather had been judges in New York. I don't know. Um but I think, you know, for him, it was it was implicit in what judicial power was. 
that it would be it would be something that um, would include a, a kind of um, uh, revisory power or supervisory power over uh, legislation. So yeah, but also uh, I don't think he was alone. By the way, no, no, he definitely like I said, Hamilton mentions it in the Federalist. I mean, it, that's why it's it's like a when I first re read the idea that Marshall sort of usurped this power and it was this genius play on his part. I, I bought it. And then years later, I, I read Randy Barnett's book, uh, Restoring the Lost Constitution, and he talked about how it's inherent. And then subsequently, I read The Federalist and I read some things with, with Governor Morris. And I said, wait, they were talking about this before the Constitution was even ratified when, when they're arguing for it. So one of their pitches is that judicial review is inherent in here. And then, of course, we learn in, from Marbury v. Madison, you know, in the in the conventional view that this is something new. Also from Morris, we get the, the change in the preamble from we, the people of the states, I'm not going to get it exact, so maybe you can explain it a little better than I can, to just we, the people. What is the significance of that? Um, well, there's, there's sort of a practical significance and a symbolic significance, right? Uh, the practical significance was, you know, they, they did an enumeration from north to south, so starting with New Hampshire and ending with, uh, with Georgia. And um, somebody pointed out that they didn't know who was going to ratify the Constitution. And so it's, it was possible that there would be states that were not included that were nonetheless named in the, in the preamble. And everybody said, oh, well, we can't do that. Um, so Morris changed it to we the people of the United States. Um, and, and everyone said, yeah, that's fine. Uh, you know. It's not not a big deal. Um, so th that was uh, that was the one change. Um, but the original draft had said, "We the people of you know blah 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 all these states," um, and then it simply said, "Do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States." Uh, Morris added the mission statement, right? Um, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, provide for domestic uh, for uh, common defense, domestic tranquility, all of those things. Um, so Morris really made the preamble much more of a uh, of a substantive thing. Whether that actually had or has, I mean, the courts have not recognized that as having any effect. Right, it doesn't give any powers to the federal government or any part of the federal government, um, but it gives the Constitution a, a, a wholeness, right? That the enumerated powers are in the service of these things that are defined as the mission in the preamble. So I think I think Morris, uh, and and again, this is part of his his description of the architecture of. Uh, separation of powers. Morris really gives the Constitution a, a, a wholeness that it wouldn't otherwise have had, um, I think, thanks to his drafting. Now, his life doesn't, of course, stop after the Constitution's ratified. He ends up in, in France as, as uh, 
I, I don't know what was the exact title he had. He wasn't an ambassador. That is a plenipotentiary something, or I can't remember yeah. what it is. Well, the United States didn't have any ambassadors at all until the 19th century, <clears throat> and fairly late in the 19th century. So he was U.S. minister to France. So in fact, okay. he was ambassador. Um, and uh, now he went there uh, as part of his partnership with Robert Morris. And they were trying to get, um, they were trying to work with the farmer, farmers general of France um, on the tobacco contract. So they were basically, they were trying to sell stuff. Uh, and um, Morris knew the business very well. He spoke French pretty well. Um, and so Robert Morris said, well, yeah, you go on, go to France. Um, so he was, he was there for two or three years doing that uh, before he became minister and he succeeded Thomas Jefferson. Um, he, he and Jefferson used to pal around in Paris and um, they had, uh, they actually liked each other very much and, and respected each other tremendously. Um, both sort of men of the world, both um, uh, witty, educated, urbane, you know, all of those things. And um, Jefferson kind of showed him around and introduced him to people and so forth. So um, Morris, yeah, Morris was well placed when he finally did become minister to France uh, to, to, um, <laughs> to to do the job successfully, except the French Revolution broke out, and that was the end of that. And what was he? The, he was the only minister from anywhere that didn't get pulled, right during the that's right during the revolution. Now he had some interesting experiences. What's the biggest one? Like the the experience he had that you think is the most interesting for people to hear about. Um, well, he tried to help the royal family in their escape to Varennes. Uh, and, which didn't work. And um, they wound up getting caught. So, I mean, uh, but, you know, every, he, he kept a diary while he was in France. And the diary is very uh, specific and very interesting about the day-to-day the -day progression of the revolution. Um, and of course, none of them really knew what they were doing. Um, they had, they were, they were ideologically committed to the idea of revolution, but they didn't really know what it meant. And, and Morris is, Morris is describing this kind of in real time in his diary. Um, and, and so it's, it's a fascinating account of, folks stumbling around and i mean you know somebody could have written the same diary about in philadelphia about the american revolution probably um morris had you know morris, morris is fascinating because he has a very um kind of distant and and amused account of human nature and and he you know Shakespeare says uh, Lord what fools these mortals be and and that's sort of Morris's attitude throughout his life, um, and so he he tries to um, in his accounts of the revolution right he tries to be honest about people's 
goals uh, about the you know what they thought their objectives were um but then he's also tries to be very candid about well you know that's not going to work so is the story apocryphal where he's surrounded by french revolutionaries and he, he takes off his peg leg and holds it up and he makes the claim that he lost his leg fighting for freedom is that a true story or is it just fiction i well there's probably some truth to that yeah um whether it's it's exactly as it was it was narrated is is unclear but yeah i mean he he was he was not um completely safe through the revolution and um he also he sheltered uh, aristocrats. He you know put them in his basement and hid them for a while until he could sneak them out of the country. Um, he he uh, loaned money to the royal family, uh, so I mean he was he was pretty deeply involved in in various uh, intrigues. Um, so yeah, I mean I I, I it certainly could be true um very likely is partially true at least that he was uh, uh at some point confronted by a band of revolutionaries now he gets he ends up of course back in the states and what were his involvement in for instance the manhattan street grid and the okay. formation of the erie canal yeah so um he Moved back to New York, ultimately moved back to his ancestral home, which he finally inherited in 1786 uh, after his mother died. Um, after after he had to buy out his elder brothers, he had he was the youngest. He was the only son in the second in, in Lewis Morris's second family. Um, his two older brothers. Three older brothers were all in England. Uh, and so he had to buy them out. So it, it took him a long time, actually, to get full possession of the estate. So he moved back to his estate, uh, reconstructed it, moved a whole, a whole pile of French furniture with him. Um, and uh, in 1800, he became a senator from New York, uh, filling out an unexpired term. Um, and then he was he was just doing various things in New York politics, but he was a strong proponent of the Erie Canal. He had been since actually since the Revolutionary War. Um, and so he was on the Erie Canal Commission. Um, he wanted a sea level canal throughout the whole thing, which wouldn't have worked at all, but he eventually saw the light on that. Um, and then, yeah, in 1811, he was a, he was a commissioner for the city of New York to draw their street grid. And and he he laid out the streets of Manhattan. What a life! Well, yeah. you brought you brought us up to the next point. And the next question I have: Governor Morris, the Federalist par excellence. <laughs> but then the War of eighteen twelve comes about. What is his position there? He thinks it's stupid. <laughs> um, I mean, that's that's the long and the short of it. Uh, he had been he had opposed Jefferson's um uh embargo in 188 right he had opposed consistently opposed the pro french policy that uh Jefferson and then later Madison had pursued <clears throat> and then um you know the the whole impressment thing was a kind of an excuse 
uh, for Jefferson to get in, or sorry, for Madison to get in, get in a scrape with, with Britain. Um, but Morris thought it was dumb. Um, and he was, he was even a little bit suspicious that it had been designed to um, harm the commercial interests of New York and, and the other Northern states, New York, Massachusetts in particular, um, because it did, right? I mean, it, it, it um, scuppered trade, it, um, it hurt uh, American interests, it hurt American shipping interests tremendously. Um, the only people who were who were thriving because of it were the folks in the South, um, who, thanks to the invention of of the cotton gin, um, were now selling cotton worldwide. And so slavery was expanding, cotton was expanding, uh, and they were doing pretty well. And he favored secession, right, for the the northeastern states to secede from the Union, or is that just mythology? Well, he certainly flirted with it. Um, anybody who had been in favor of secession would have thought that Morris was on their side. Um, anybody who, would against, who was against it probably would also have thought that Morris was on their side, because he, he was, you know, at, at that point, he was pretty well out of politics, and um, he was writing a lot of letters, and he he would kind of he was a little bit more daring in his letters I think than he would have been um, in a legislative hall or or a, an executive office or something like that. Um, so uh, you know I think and he would say stuff like yeah let's secede and that'll show him kind of thing. But um, he I don't think he really he he wanted he wanted to threaten secession in order to get. Um, to, in order to carry his point, in order to get concessions from the Madison uh, administration for trade and and whatnot, um, but I don't I don't think he I, mean, I, I don't think he would have gone through with it in the end. To me, the most important metric that these guys can be measured by is where they stand on sort of a, a Lockean liberty. You know, the purpose of government is to protect life, liberty, and property. Where does Morris rate uh, if you're gauging him by that metric? I mean, I, I know he was an aristocrat and he believed in a strong central government. But as far as from what I know, that was because he thought that was the best way to secure liberty. So how would you rate, rate him uh, on that scale of just defending the liberty of the people? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think he's pretty strong on defending the liberties of the people. He, he thought property was very important, right? Property was the thing that, that you needed to make sure was strongly preserved, um, that civil liberty was essential, in a in a system like ours, um, I, I very early on in 1776, I, I think while he was kind of working out what his positions were, um, he wrote a series of of kind of short essays about purposes of government and liberty and so forth and so on, um, and it's a very lock in document, and I think that. Um, 
you know, he says, uh, you know, pure liberty can only exist in a state of nature. I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, pure liberty only exists in a state of nature. Once you get into society, what you've got to do is, is secure civil liberty. And civil liberty is the thing that will enable our country to, to flourish, uh, that will render property rights secure, um, and that will will do do the things that we want to do in order to make sure that the liberties of the people are protected. Um, so I think he was very strong on that. And I think that um, I think that's part of his his um, uh, opposition to slavery as well, is that he was he thought this is this is clearly slavery is clearly a violation of property rights of human rights, of anything approaching human dignity, um, and that it is just simply inconsistent because it does not recognize their humanity. Phenomenal. Okay. Is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have? Any important points about Mr. Governor Morris that need the people need to hear about? Well, we could talk about how he was a ladies' man. Um, <laughs> that was uh, uh, a kind of consistent refrain. I mean, his friends would write to each other, you know, and say, "Oh my God, Governor's at it again." <laughs> um, so he had a he had a long affair in France with um, uh, a, a French aristocrat lady, Adelaide Flo, and um, may might. They had a pregnancy scare at one point. Uh, I don't think they actually had children. Um, but in his diaries, he records, um, it may not be every time, but he records fairly often when they had sex. And um, it, it, he does it sort of in code, you know. Uh, we worshipped the Cyprian goddess and things like <laughs> that. So um, uh, he was... Um, you know, he was funny. Um, he was the center of attention wherever he went. Um, and so he would write, you know, he would write little poems to his hostess, right? And this, this is part of his seduction technique. So, you know, he was uh, he was quite the ladies' man. Uh, he, even, he even flirted with Dolly Madison at one point. Uh, while while James was in the White House, um, he uh, ultimately married. Uh, he married a, a woman um, who was from the Randolph clan in Virginia, uh, whose own past was not mm, entirely uh, free of scandal. Um, and ultimately, they had a son. Um, <laughs> That's a nice way to put that she was accused of murder. I mean, yeah, well, it's not free of scandal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, she had, yeah, these things happen. These things happen, right? <laughs> um, and nobody actually knows the circumstances of the uh, uh, of the incident. Um, ultimately, she was acquitted in court. Uh, her lawyer, by the way, was John Marshall. Oh, wow. and, um, and there's there's actually a letter uh, that Morris wrote to Marshall before he decided to to actually marry her. Uh, and he said, you know, 
Dear Mr. Marshall, is there anything else I should know about Ms. Randolph? Uh, so, and Morris, uh, Marshall wrote back and said, no, um, you know, it was a long time ago, so don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. Well, Professor, thank you for a great discussion. Do you have a, a website where people can find you or a blog or, or something? Um, I don't. They can find me at juniata.edu. I'm, I'm on the faculty website. So uh, uh, look us up, come see us. We are Juniata College won the national championship in women's volleyball for the second consecutive year this year. Um, so please come to our volleyball games and support our teams. And All right. Thank you very much. And Thank for you. now, this is the Rational Egoist signing out. Remember, leave your comments, your likes, your dislikes, whatever. Let me know what you think. Till next time.